Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode of Protect and Serve contains names and stories of Indigenous people that have sadly died. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. You're listening to part two of my chat with former Detective Inspector Greg Lamy of the New South Wales Police Force. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you pause this episode and listen to that one first. In this second episode, Greg and I discuss the challenges of rural policing and look back on his greatest career challenge, the investigation into the homicide of Teresa Binge, a murder which remains unsolved today. Next on Protect and Serve. When, one of the other greatest challenges, I think, I'd be interested to understand how you managed this, was dealing with the own, your own personal emotion when it comes to trying to tackle the exposure to quite confronting scenes of trauma and death. Now, it's mm -hmm. one thing to attend a homicide, which, you know, is a stabbing, as you say, they're not pleasant environments to be there, you know, in terms of how do you process your own feelings and emotions at such a confronting scene adrenaline is one of the biggest factors i think that allows us to get through it because we're so busy focusing on what needs to be done but often after the incident you have time to process 
bodies, the exposure to something which is generally not very pleasant. How did you deal with that? Well, look, I'm, here I'm being vulnerable to you, Ollie, and, and speaking quite frankly about how we dealt with things like that 20 years ago, very, very different, rightly so, and thank God, different to how people deal with things today. So how we dealt with that, yes, a lot of it's adrenaline. You know, you wear a mask. So as any police officer knows, you go to all sorts of horrible things. And people that have jumped under express trains to off 10-storey buildings to children that have drowned or been killed, you name it, most cops have been to that sort of horrible, horrible stuff. And you know what? For me, it was never about that actual scene, that dead person there or those 50 body parts scattered everywhere. It was about the emotions of the people that loved them that had probably the biggest effect on me. Now, how did I deal with that? One, you wear a mask, and two, you drank. And I'm being completely honest, back in the days, um, that's what you did. You drank and you um, drank with your mates. That's how you process stuff generally as a detective and well, as any cop, really. And things are a little bit different today because there are better um, and more comprehensive support processes in place than going to the pub and drinking because it's not, um, yeah, yeah, that works short term but it's not a long-term solution. And um, I'm glad of that because there's all sorts of stuff today with peer support programs and and other things like that, um, uh, psychological support, which we never had, um, never thought, we probably wouldn't have taken it up to be honest. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that, you know, you know, things aren't necessarily done like that anymore. It's, it's interesting because even I never pursued a career as a detective. I stayed generally most of my career in general duties in, in that response area. That I, I enjoyed the job to job, the thrill of the blue lights and, and the fast cars, etc. But and even for us in general duties, managing that trauma was done after a seven night night shift. We'd go to the social club. Mm -hmm across the road from the old police station there at Holden Hill. And we would drink until two, three o'clock yep. in the afternoon so we could get our body mm. clocks realigned to working day shift. And you look back on mm. it and you think, my goodness me, you know, there's probably some people who could have coped with that, but that sort of drinking culture could equally turn people um, into regular drinkers, which then becomes an mm. issue because the word mental health, the words of, well-being crisis and psychologists was was were almost frowned upon seen as a bit of a vulnerability even in my era of policing it was not, nothing on like yeah. ptsd another word you know words mm. we wouldn't dare use in the typing room or in the briefing room to say i'm struggling you know it was just we just battled through and like you say the culture of drinking was one which was which allowed us to get through those difficult times but equally mm. as you say the support services and networks which probably could still be better and probably need to be better um are certainly far more improved today than they ever were especially even from when i left policing which was not too yeah. long ago really um yeah. I, I i want to we've spoken a lot about the challenges and the pressures of policing in australia officers having the ability to use a series of different accoutrements which has grown exponentially over time from just having a baton to having now tasers and, and other use of force options which provide police a number of different strategical positions to place themselves in to resolve issues one of your colleagues has had to make that sacrifice and is actually one of the first police officers in australia to be charged with murder on duty whilst uh, he was trying to deal with a car thief in Broadway Glebe in 2000. Are you able to talk us through that? Mm. 
Yeah, well, I was still in Sydney at the time, and it, he was he was the first Australian officer to be charged with murder, you know, murder, actual murder, mm. um, on duty. Now, wow. there's been many since, um, including one recent one in the Northern Territory, but mm. um, he shot and killed. You know, we talked a lot about before about this reaction time and these seconds. Like, uh, he was chasing a stolen car and pulled up in traffic, got out, went to the window, and then shot the fellow. Now, the fellow... And again, I'm you know I'm probably outside my scope speaking in detail about it. I only know certain things, but the fellow had been going for his um, seatbelt to take it off. Now, um, our mate who was in our unit at the time shot him. Now, I, I I can't comment. I don't know whether that was a mistake. I I would very very much doubt that he did that with any intention. As you said before, no cop ever wants to shoot anybody no. like that. So, um, but. The New South Wales Police, in their wisdom at the time, actually charged him with murder. And as you know and your listeners would know, murder requires a level of intent to actually kill someone or do grievous bodily harm. Look, needless to say, he never got through committal. He's not in the police force anymore, of course, after that. But um, And he'd be suffering. You know, that's changed his life as well. So, I mean, they, those sort of tragic things do happen. There's a, there, I just recall a, a story um, years after that in, in roughly the same area of a... Of a uh, a lady sergeant out at Campsie who shot a fellow in a kitchen and before she shot him she had yelled allegedly taser 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 now make up your own mind what happened there but again you've got to think gee was that a terrible terrible mistake in terms of did she shoot the gun instead of the taser mm. or what um so the, you know again it's so easy isn't it to sit back years and years later and psychoanalyze every millisecond of what should have and could have and did happen. And that's an interesting one because I think the technicalities mm. behind that is why you generally see Australian police officers cross draw the taser because if the taser is on mm. the same size as the same side as their preferred firearm side, yeah. you want to make sure they're pulling taser, not firearm. And as you quite rightly say, yeah, they're that's pulling right. out taser, taser, taser. And as they're going out to extend to kind of that, phase one sort of deployment and they pull the trigger and it mm. goes bang instead of you know there's a serious mm. problem so i think there's a couple of things which have been done since that but um it's an it's another podcast in itself but i want to move on one of one of our greatest synergies in terms of our police work is our time in the bush and yeah. from two different perspectives really mine more operationally in terms of the general duties component and yours from the investigative yeah. work you know, I've worked in the yeah. southwest of Queensland in Hungerford, a, a small mm -hmm. outback community with 12 people. Um, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere, patrol area of, I think, about 18,000 square kilometres, taking in a lot of pastoral land. But equally, mm. when things go bad, not only are you on your own and backup is a very, very long, long, long way away, you become a jack of all trades. You become the detective. You become the crime scene officer. You become the general duties response officer. You become the, you know, the senior investigating yeah. officer. All these tools. Ultimately, you can call the backup in, but it's you to start with. And I, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about sometimes the challenges of working in these rural communities and what it was like for you moving into the bush and then climbing up through the managerial ranks as you did to the rank of inspector eventually and kind of your exposure of working in the country. Yeah, I, look, like you, I loved it. I could, it was, you know, being from the bush, not bush per se, but certainly not the, the city. Mm. Yeah, you know, I loved working and living in those communities, those smaller towns. 
Um, and you get a real buzz out of you know being involved in the community, being able to solve things yourself. And you are on your own. You know, you might you might go out to a domestic at night and where it goes pear shaped, and your nearest backup's an hour away. Mm. Um, and you've got to deal with that. And as you know, your, your best weapon is not what you've got on your hip, but your mouth. So country cops generally are very, very good communicators because they have to be, you know. Um, and to say things don't happen in the country and it's just, you know, I went out the country thinking I was basically going to semi-retire. And to be honest, nothing could have been further from the truth. Um, simply because you don't have the level of resources, you know, you don't have, you know, our crime scene examiners would take five hours to get to a crime scene if they got out of bed and even came and you had to beg them to do that. So it's very different to the bush. You know, you haven't got a car crew around the corner that can come and help you. You haven't got, in your case, you know, detectives that can, can call out and say, what do you reckon about this? Mm. Support services aren't there. You're really on your own. But that's a challenge. I loved it and I know you loved it too. Um, and it's a challenge a lot of other police don't, you know, I, I, I'd recommend anybody to go out to the bush because it really strengthens your skills in communication strengthens your skills in being able to just get stuff done um look I, I loved it i you know i look back very fondly on that sort of decade or so i was out in some really remote places including some um indigenous communities which again you have to adapt your style um for that as well and not all cops did i saw plenty of cops come through places like walgett and lightning ridge that just didn't fit in they came from the country there normally get points to move over to the coast and they just didn't fit in with that community. They tried to apply the same methods of city policing to the push. And as you would know, that just doesn't no, work. And they no. start to get the community offside and, um, mm. you know, things just go bad from there. So you were commissioned as an inspector in 2008. And, and one Ooh. of your biggest investigations, which still remains unsolved today, but was involving the murder of an Indigenous lady, um, in a remote location near the Queensland, New South Wales border in 2003, the murder of Teresa, Teresa Binge. She went missing one night and then was found dead 12 days later across the border. Now, obviously, since leaving policing, we'll talk about this shortly, you know, you've gone into writing and you have a, a yep. fascinating book out. Um, this was a bit of a catalyst as to um, your book in terms of it's not a reenactment of the mm. story, but you've taken no. excerpts from it and, and plugged it into it. If you could talk us through that particular homicide and the challenges it presented mm. you. Yeah, um, it's an interesting story and I tell it to quite a few people and they sort of look at me and they come up with all sorts of solutions. Well, why didn't you do this? And what about this and that? Um, but, you know, Teresa Binge was, it was an Indigenous lady and um, was out on the border of Queensland and Gunnery, so very remote area, a couple of little towns out there, a little um, blackfella town of about 1,500 people, 1,000 of them black. Across the um, river was largely or predominantly a white country-centric town, and they didn't like each other for various social reasons. Um, but uh, in 2003, um, Teresa went drinking at a, a local pub and went, and went um, oh, sorry, was, was bought a number of drinks by a fellow who worked on the council there, a white fellow, and went home, well, well, well sorry, left the pub with him and, gen and wasn't seen again for 10 days until she was found naked, bashed and dead under a coal, which is a, you know, a cement thing that runs under a road, um, about 20k 
on the other side of the border, so from one state to another. Wow. Um, challenging in terms of um, support we had. So um, it's a very, very long way from Sydney. Um, and the support I had and uh, some other detectives had, it's really limited in terms of, you know, we didn't have our homicide squad rushing out to, to help us. They came and I think they were there all 12 hours on the way to somewhere else. So we didn't have that level of support. And in retrospect, I think back and think, oh, why did this happen? You know, was it a social thing? Did, it, did nobody care about her? So I worked that case for many, many years and it did have a big toll on me. I had to deal with the family, that sort of thing. She, um, she was never seen after the pub. The fellow that picked her up said he went home with her and had sex, had breakfast the next morning, then waved a goodbye. Now, I think that's rubbish. I can say that. I've told the coroner that in open court. So it's, you know, um, it's not, not a secret. Um, I think he actually did kill her. But the problem is, Ollie, and you would, you would appreciate this working in some of these communities, is that the witnesses we had weren't terribly reliable. No. That's not to say I didn't believe them. Um, it's just to say they weren't reliable witnesses in terms of they might tell you certain things, but they might be drunks themselves. So you think, all right, if they're going to give that evidence in court, it's going to sort of stand up. So it was frustrating for me because I all the evidence led to one person. In little towns like that, unfortunately, another dozen people always get mentioned and then the community then tends to focus on one or two of them which has nothing to do with your suspect. So you've got to follow those up. I mean, you can't have tunnel vision in these matters. You've got to chase up. You've got to chase every rabbit down every hole. Because if you don't, it'll come back to bite you. But you know, chasing every rabbit down every hole, that particular investigation took many, many years. And it was, you know, it's still unsolved. It's still outstanding. I'm not sure what the New South Wales Police are doing about it now, to be honest. Um, um, yeah, so, you know, it, it, that took its toll on me. It's just that frustration, I suppose, and that dealing with the emotions of the, the family and the community who rightfully want justice. But, um, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what I believe. It's done. It's all about the evidence when you come down to it. And, and it just wasn't there. And, and the greatest challenges, and sometimes people often, I don't, I think, don't realise this or overlook it, is that... Um, the burden of proof, you know, beyond mm. reasonable doubt is, is, is what you've really got mm. to take an investigation to, you know, which is a very high mm. threshold to be able to meet. It's not on the balance of probabilities, because if it's on the balance of probabilities, everybody would be getting locked up because ultimately, generally speaking, yeah. those people that were within, you know, shooting distance of something would generally have you know, some level of knowledge or understanding as to what's going on. As you say, the individual that you've, you've spoken about, mm. what... Big investigations do take their toll on you. As you say, that one there, you know, you're dealing with the family all the time. You're trying to come up with investigative strategies to try and hold somebody accountable for what is a horrific crime against an individual. And I think probably what places the spotlight more on that particular case is you are talking of the death of an Indigenous Australian. Um, oh. And there's often, rightly or wrongly, rhetoric from the Indigenous community, which they say not enough is done when they're the victims of crime or they're yeah. always perceived as the baddies in any particular situation. So it was obviously an, an awful lot of pressure to try and work with the family and develop rapport and show that you're doing everything you can to try and support them. Now, standing behind every good detective, um, whether male or female is often a support network of family. 
obviously mm. your family at that time would have and um, you know still do today meant a lot in terms of supporting you through the challenges of that particular investigation were you able to debrief to family was it something as a family something you were able to use to help you kind of get through some of those tougher moments in policing well you know the short answer is no Ollie, to that and that's that's some of the da- it's my downfall but it's a downfall of a lot of um police officers too is that mm. they don't you know they don't share things they they keep things bottled up they wear a mask their whole career and it all comes tumbling down when you go to take that mask off and everything falls apart. And it happened to me as well. If I can, you know, I can say I, I had a mental breakdown. Or I had a, a, a number of years where I found it very, very difficult to deal with things. Um, when I left the police force, I found it very, very difficult to adapt to what I would call normal life because that mask came off. Mm. Um, but, you know, again... Uh, you know, people say, oh, what advice would you give young cops today? And I would say, look, you know, be part of the community, you know, have good friends and that around. In the old days, cops would go off to the cop world, cop, you know, academy, and their friends, that would be the end of their friends that they always had. And it was a very, very common thing. Um, but it's really important that you keep that network and that you have community ties and the job isn't your whole life. Like, unfortunately, it was for me. Um and, you know, have some of those big investigations. You become really, really invested, but you need to sort of take stop, stop and step back and say, look, this is, is a job. It's an important job, but you need to look after yourself as well. It's really important. And again, you can go 10, 15, 20 years and be fine, but you come to some point where you won't be fine anymore. Um, and, you know, you'll have to backtrack and deal with all that stuff, which is what happened to me. And there's some of the greatest challenges because there's one of the hardest parts about community policing. And I've lived and breathed it myself in some of the communities I've worked in across South Australia and Queensland is being able to integrate to the community and to be accepted as, you know, as not just the local cop, but as a decent bloke or girl or mm. you know, as a friend or, you know, playing in the cricket team. Cause there's always that level of caution as, you know, can I have this extra beer? Is Ollie watching mm. me drink this beer? Mm. You know, is he going to watch me jump into a car? And 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 it and it is really difficult for cops to switch off. You know, because you do naturally observe behaviours. You do watch if someone's yeah. sinking a carton of piss and then jumping in the car and driving. You think, crikey, O'Reilly, I you know really should say something. But equally, I want to be accepted in this community because I don't just want to eat, sleep, live, and breathe the job. But in small country towns, you know, I remember working in a country town in South Australia called Swan Reach, which is a beautiful, beautiful place um, down there in the River Murray. And and it was so hard to integrate because ultimately the community you're living, you're responsible for policing as well. So the chaps that you could be playing cricket with one day, if they're not wearing their seatbelts or they're speeding, you're supposed to be policing them impartially as you would anybody else. Now, how difficult is that? You know, how am I how am I supposed to form friendships when? You know, I'm the judge, yeah. jury, and executioner. We're locking them up the next day. Yes, exactly. You know, it's exactly. Really, 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 really difficult. And I take it my is tough, off. but it's a good, it's yeah. a challenge for country mm. cops. You know, it's um, it's one you've got to be able to adapt to. But Do look, you know, it still happens to me today. I can go to a mm. pub with a mate of mine who's an ex-cop who doesn't look like an ex-cop, um, and we'll have people come up to us and start questioning us about you know where we're working, what we're doing, and stuff, thinking that we're cops. It still happens today, and I've been in the job for 12 10 12 years but you do have you can pick you'll be able to cops can pick mm. other cops yeah. you do you're all, you're on the lookout for stuff that situational awareness 
that you mm. is bred into you when you train at the academy, but then you carry with you your whole career because your life depends on it, stays with you. It becomes a problem when that situational awareness affects your life and it yeah. affects your life and your relationship and your friends and family where you're carrying that particularly after you leave the force. I often said if, if there was ever a situation for me where I was pulling over a local that I was friendly with, I often and, and, and they'd done something wrong, I almost took offence to it because it showed the level of respect they actually had for my position and what my mm. job was. You know, I used to say, you're putting me in a position where I've now got to question my own integrity and my ethics in terms of the job I do. So I've just asked you to say, listen, you know, Ollie's a good bloke. Let's do what we're supposed to do because we respect him. We, we don't want to get into trouble. We don't want to place him in a difficult situation. Let's just do the right thing. And I used to have those difficult conversations and say, if you help me, I'll always help you. And, and I and I found that was the kind of the central ground that we could always kind of you know, resolve issues pretty quickly. But you, like you say, the key thing is rapport. But I, I want to talk about your post-policing life now because you've moved into the private sector you know you and i've worked yep. together on some investigations um outside of policing you've made a fantastic transition out of law enforcement into the private sector equally training the next generations of investigators in the private sector in in local law authority uh, and and doing mm. a remarkable job of it and also become an accomplished author tell us about your your moves outside of policing yeah so um Again, it wasn't easy, wasn't an easy transition. And for your, you know, ex-police that are listening to your podcast will know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not mm. just finish the job one day and then everything's fine and you move on. It took me lots, took me years. Um, you know, I'd walk the streets being very angry sometimes. I didn't, I had very, very low tolerance for any criminal doing anything from crossing the road to driving without their seatbelt. But you've got to move on from that. Um, so, I and I did. One of the ways I did that, I was writing. So no, something that I've never done before, but fiction writing, which I had to learn. And what I did is turn that story I told you in before about Teresa and her murder into a fiction story, which I found terribly therapeutic for me just to be able to write it. And the book I did end up writing was written for me. Um, apparently people that read it like it. So um, that's good too. And I want to continue on um, with with that fiction story about the detective that I've made up and you know, and that sort of thing. So I've got an enormous amount of um, satisfaction out of writing that. Um, it was very cathartic for me to put all that down on paper, but then to go into that fiction world um, and write about really the story of a young detective. Now, that just quickly, the story of my character is that he gets sent to a small town called Bogabilla, which is where well, what I was just talking about, because he'd accidentally, strangely enough, following on from what we've talked about, shot and killed his partner in an inner Sydney drug raid. So he was sent out there. When he gets out there, this is set in the 80s, um, there's sort of a world of corruption and he goes on a big journey where there's, he has to search for missing women and all sorts of stuff and there's KKK-type groups and all this sort of stuff. So it was really, it was fun to write. I, I enjoyed it. I'd, I'd love to do more of it. I thought so I didn't win the Powerball last night, so I've got to keep working. But... Um, you know, writing fiction, a novel like that takes an enormous amount of time, but you know, I certainly want to keep doing it um, as much as I can because I think it's a great story. The other thing is, too, my main focus professionally now is um, building investigative capacity in the private sector. But certainly in this country, it's been a real issue. And I'm not talking about just your private eyes, 
or private dicks or whatever you want to call them, the ones investigating, the, <laughs> you know, ones hiding in the bushes watching cheating partners or or investigating your car crashes or some sort of work cover fraud, that's all good. All the way up to state government, you know, local government, I do a lot of work with investigative and compliance roles. So I'm really, really focused and driven, in fact, to um, improve that capability because it's quite poor. And again, I go back to this. The first thing I tell any one of the thousands of students I've trained over the last few years is that being an investigator is the same. I, I say, you know, there could be a murder out here in the car park and you're, you're a local council ranger and you'd be thinking, I've got no idea where to start from that. But when you finish with me, you'll know exactly where to start with that because the process is the same. The the, the one skill that I think that we develop very quickly as um, ex-police officers, I hate the term cops, but ex-cops, is we find out that we've actually got this entrepreneurial flair that we like to create opportunities and develop businesses. And because one of the greatest challenges we have is when we transition out of policing into the private sector is understanding, you know, you've, you've been trained with these multiple sets of skills, you know, some of the biggest ones, communications, you know, use of computers, you know, operational safety, risk assessments, planning. There's just, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and that they're, they're the skills which, you know, can be so helpful in terms of opportunities for other employers in different industries, mm. in terms of, you know, managerial work that you could pick up. So there's just so much. But um, talk, t- tell us about your book. Um, where can we where can we get a copy? What was the journey like in writing it? And uh, you've obviously been published a little while now. Yeah, uh, the book was out in 20, published in 2018. So it is time for second in the series which everybody i meet keeps asking me i say it's coming but um uh look it was it was a journey it took quite a few years but i had to learn the craft of writing i knew how to write obviously as we all do but there's a real craft to fiction to writing fiction and um i say this to a lot of people i do a lot of presentations to to groups and that too and they everybody says i want to write a book and i say you beauty do it how can i help you because authors love helping authors, that's the first thing. And they say, oh, I want to write it about my life. Everyone almost says that. And I say, that's great. Just think about this. Everybody wants to do that. Why don't you write it about a fictional character based on you? You'll have far more fun doing that. You'll be able to tell a story that people can read and it's all fiction or faction or whatever they want to call it. Um, so that's what I encourage people. But you've got to learn the craft of crafting a story so you can't just sit down at a computer and start belting stuff out you can but it won't make any sense i'm not talking about spelling grammar that's a whole another level it's about crafting a story that someone will want to read and make sense so you've got to learn to do that not i spent many years learning to do that because it is a it's a different beast uh, but once you learn to do that you actually realize that what's funny with fiction writing and even movies is that the way they're crafted is exactly the same. It's a, it's an eight-step process, which I don't have time, obviously, today to go through, but it's an eight-step process that is the exact same from whether you're watching Star Wars, Mrs. Doubtfire, or reading Michael Connolly or Stephen King's latest book. Mm. And once you learn that process, you're in far better stead to be able to craft a story. The, the editing and all that, you deal with that later. Don't worry about that. That's what editors get paid for. 
but um, your story is yours. And I just, I love telling people, just write your book, just get down and write it, but learn how to do it first. Amazing. Well, Greg, but the last hour has been incredibly fascinating. It's gone incredibly quickly. And to hear some of your Thanks. stories, your anecdotes, your experiences, thank you for sharing some of your vulnerabilities. I think on um, behalf of the team and I here at Protect and Serve, I think first and foremost, thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifices. Mm. And, um, you know, we wish you all the best in your post-policing career, in the training that you're undertaking, in in guiding the next generation of, you know, civil investigators, both at a private level and and at local law. It's critically important to have good investigators because ultimately a bad one can do an awful lot of damage. So thank you for the work you're doing. And uh, we wish you all the best for the future. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm really grateful you've had me on the show. I know you've had some pretty big time guests. I've listened to quite a few of them. It's been fascinating to hear their stories. What's fascinating, I guess, particularly the ex-cops that were really all the same. doesn't matter whether you're an assistant deputy commissioner level or whether you're a constable. You know, like we, we think the same. Generally, we have the same views. Um, I mean, that's why you and I met each other and got along so well. And we'd had similar sort of country service and that as well. And that's the real thing about being a police officer, no matter where you are in the world, is that you'll always connect with others that you know, have done, been there and done that. So um, I'm really grateful you had me on. Um, I look forward to hearing lots more of your, your guests. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.